Welcome to the Weekend University podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organize lecture days once per month, where attendees get a full day of talks from the UK's leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. Our podcast features in-depth interviews with our speakers, so you can learn more about their work. To keep updated on upcoming events and new lectures, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com. In this episode, we're joined by Mick Cooper. Mick is an internationally recognized author, trainer, and consultant in the fields of humanistic, existential, and pluralistic therapies. He is a chartered psychologist and professor of counseling psychology at the University of Rohanton. His books include Existential Therapies, Working at Relational Depth in Counseling and Psychotherapy, and most recently, Working with Goals in Psychotherapy and Counseling, which was published by Oxford University Press in March of this year. In 2014, Mick received the Carmi Harari Mid-Career Award from the American Psychological Association. He is a fellow of the British Association for Counseling and Psychotherapy and the Academy of Social Sciences. You can follow him on Twitter at MickCooper77. Enjoy the show. All right, Mick, so to get started, could you tell me how you would describe yourself to someone you're meeting for the first time who you've, you've never met before? As a professional or as a person? Both. <laughs> well, as a professional, I'd probably say I'm a, uh, a pluralistic, I work, I work in a pluralistic way, uh, which means that as a practitioner, I draw on wide range of different kind of methods that I've been trained in over the years. Uh, to try and tailor the practice to the particular client. Uh, and as a person, uh, I would say I'm a father of four, professor of counseling psychology, um, and uh, probably lots more things that may, may not be relevant to this podcast. So I'll stop there. Okay, and you mentioned that you use a pluralistic approach in, in your work. Yeah. Could you, could you tell us a bit more about that and, and why you use this, this approach? Yeah, so a pluralistic, the term pluralism was one that uh, John McLeod and I developed uh, about 10, 15 years or so ago to describe a way of thinking about therapy that, that, that's probably out, <coughs> we're certainly not the only people who have adopted did that or think about therapy in that way but maybe there wasn't a term for it before <clears throat> so pluralism is the idea that there's lots of different ways of helping clients and that it's important not to get too stuck in one kind of kind of school schoolism which says that there is one best way and whether that's person-centered or psychodynamic or cbt but it's about trying to stay open to um, lots of different ways of the idea that clients can be helped in lots of different ways and that lots of different therapists bring lots of skills. Um, and uh, if we want to know the best way of working with an individual client, something that we can do that is often very helpful is to talk to clients about it and work out with them in a collaborative way what's going to help them most. That's not to say that um, clients are always going to know or that what they uh, say they want is really what they're going to need. But um, it's a pretty good starting point, really, to talk to clients, what they found helpful before and uh, <clears throat> what they feel they need now. And then looking at our skill set and thinking about whether we can uh, help clients in that way and having that 
discussion and it may be that we can't you know if the client is asking for a lot of guidance and advice then uh that may not be the way that we work but then it may be important that we refer the client on rather than um trying to do things that we don't feel comfortable with or trying to uh encourage the client to see the what they need in the way that suits us um so my so and of course we all bring our own skills and knowledge to the way that we work for me most of my training has been in existential therapy person-centered therapy so i work in a fairly relational way but i do bring in insights from other therapeutic approaches that i think are really valuable um so i may use more cognitive ideas at times or some behavioral ideas um if clients are say dealing with particular anxieties or uh, patterns of behavior that, that, that would be helpful change. So I think all these things can be helpful. And of course we can't do everything, but um, I think there's, there's space for us to bring in lots of things that we've learned about as practitioners, not get too precious about any one particular modality. hundred percent. And as a client yourself, which of the approaches have you find most, most beneficial? Well, I found most different approaches, both beneficial and uh, unhelpful at different times. Um, so I've had CBT, found that very helpful at times, and other times found it very unhelpful. Existential therapy, uh, yeah, that was <laughs> that was probably of all of them actually the one I practiced was the one that I've least ever experienced as a really helpful approach. But I'm sure it can be. Person-centered therapy, uh, I had a fantastic person-centered supervisor for many years, which is really helpful, and I found it helpful. Not so genuinely, you know, my experience has been very pluralistic. Probably the therapist that I found most useful over the years was actually a Kleinian uh, therapist, but probably the least helpful therapy I ever had also was a, uh, a Kleinian. So it really depends a lot on, I guess, where you're at in life. Uh, and it's depending for me on what I've needed. And of course, more than anything else, it's dependent on the person of the therapist. One of the things that some of our research has been showing more and more recently is just about the importance for clients of feeling cared for by therapists and feeling like the therapist is doing something that, that, that as a client you matter to them. It's not just that they're doing a job. And I think if I look at the therapies that I've had, that's always been the underlying factor is whether it feels like the therapist is just doing a job and not particularly interested or whether they feel that there's actually a human giving and a human connection and where there is the orientation becomes much more secondary yeah and you've read a book on working at relational depth in counseling in psychotherapy for anyone that doesn't know could you please explain the concept of what relational depth uh, actually is well it's very much related to what i was just saying really it's about a it's, it's about a state of deep connection uh, and engagement and relatedness between client and therapist. Uh, and it's those moments when client and therapist or client or therapist, and our research shows that it's often at the same time, feel a very strong connection to the other. Um, and what the research shows is that where clients experience those moments and have those moments of deep connection, that they tend to have uh, better outcomes um, it's associated with better outcomes. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's those times with clients where there's a sense of real meeting, uh, sharing the same worldview. It's a very emotional, uh, embodied sense. It's not a kind of cognitive, just a cognitive 
feeling of being understood is a deep empathic uh, connection from the therapist to the client, but also the client really feeling that they that they they're understood and that they're got, and they seem to be very productive moments with therapy. So the work on relational depth has been about those moments and about that experience of deep connection and then um how might therapists be able to facilitate that and um and create a space in which there can be more of that depth of connection because of course it's not something that therapists can make happen uh you can't manipulate the relationship in some way to have a depth of connection but what you can do perhaps is to we relate to clients in ways that might allow more of that connection to come out and also to look as a therapist at your own barriers to connection uh, so that you don't get in the way of it. So that's the kind of work we've been doing around that. Are there any practical things that therapists can do to create those conditions where a situation of relational death is more likely to occur? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, I think one of the things going back to what I was saying earlier is that um, allowing yourself as a therapist to express care to clients seems to be important um, because clients say that that <clears throat> was one of the main things that allowed that depth of connection to happen. So that's not about, it's not about trying to feel care if you don't, and it's absolutely not about not having boundaries, but it is about trying to allow yourself to communicate feelings of interest, um, concern for clients, a kind of human flexibility. You know, if you're worried about a client, maybe feeling it's okay to say that, not being so boundaried that what comes across is a kind of cold, detached disinterest. Um, clients were saying things like, it was when the therapist saw that it was raining outside and they gave me an umbrella to go home with. Um, or they carried on the session a few more minutes because they could see how upset I was. It's those kinds of things that for clients seem to be really important in creating the trust that allows them to feel that they can really connect with this person, that they feel safe um, because the person isn't just doing a job. And of course, professionalism is also really important to clients. Um, that it's not about wanting a, a, a therapist who's going to be doing lots of self-disclosure or breaking boundaries or not being uh, clear about the therapeutic relationship, but it is about working with someone where at some level there's a sense that this is someone who really cares about me and, and, and wants to do the best for me. And clients talk about things like having this research from, from colleague Roseanne Knox about clients talk about the importance of having feeling that the therapist is on their side. So that's one thing. And I think the other thing, again, going back to what I was saying, is as therapists, we can think about what are the ways in which we disconnect from people that might leak into our therapeutic work. So, for instance, if we maybe deal with interpersonal um, threats by intellectualizing or emotionally withdrawing, maybe by becoming passive, uh, maybe becoming very compliant, if we can look at our lives and think about what are the times when I withdraw from connection uh, when I don't need to. So not just when do I keep myself safe, but when do I withdraw from connection when actually I could afford to stay in connection with people. Then we can look at our therapeutic work and say, does anything ever leak into that? Do we, for instance, intellectualize with clients when it's difficult to stay connected or do we become very compliant? So when a client challenges us, 
rather than um, maybe expressing how things feel to us. We've done some research on this and we find that sometimes the work things that therapists in their everyday lives aren't particularly relevant, but in around half the cases they are. And in around a fifth of the cases, therapists could recognize that they do really leak into their work at times. And of course that's not a bad thing, but what's useful is to become aware of that and then think about how can I work on that? How can I be mindful of that so that I can allow myself to stay more in connection with my client all the time. And in the Kleinian therapist that you were working with, did you experience this relational depth? I think in my therapy, I've experienced it um, at different times in different ways. Um, certainly that depth of connection has been important to me as a client, as well as a therapist and the sense of connection um, with someone has always been an important factor in, in, in my own work and in my own life. Yeah. Now I read, I read on your website, Mick, that you wrote your PhD thesis on the psychological effects of wearing a mask. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be interested to ask, uh, why did you decide to focus on that particular topic? Well, it's a very good question. And on reflection, it probably wasn't the smartest thing I've ever done in my life, but I was very interested in, um, I was very interested in drama and I had a friend who did a workshop on masks when I was in my undergraduate studies. Um, and what I was aware of when I did this mask workshop was just how powerfully transforming masks could be. Um, we did this drama where we put a mask and we became the character in the mask. And I was really struck just by how much it could, how much I and I think other people around me got into quite a immersed state of um, tra transformed state really. So I was very interested in that and I was interested in the way that masks could become a very powerful way of transforming people. And then I became, and then I became particularly interested in looking at whether perhaps what was happening is that the masks were helping people to express different sides of their personality. So um, I did a thesis looking at the idea, looking at um, different cultures and looking at literature and also some uh, drama therapy work at the idea that masks were a way of helping people unlock different aspects of themselves. Um, like their shadow side, uh, like their anima or their animus, uh, like uh, their vulnerable cells or their more angry cells. Um, and I think often they were, you, you know, they are often used in that way and in, in quite powerful ways. And I guess therapeutically, if you can help people access these different sides. And there's, there's theatre companies, for instance, I think it's Geese Theatre Company, um, use it in, for instance, in prison contexts where they help uh, offenders look at these different aspects of themselves um, that maybe are more difficult to communicate in everyday life. And also the, the kind of metaphor of the mask is being something that we put on and what's beneath the mask is that, you know, that the mask can be our persona and that there's something beneath that. So I was very interested in that and wrote about that. Um, my examiners weren't so keen on it and uh, basically asked me to rewrite the whole thing from scratch. So I spent after about four or five years doing that, I then spent another three years writing a more psychologically evidence-based thesis, which was, which was around the idea of masks 
uh, again, the question of whether masks change us, do they disinhibit us? Uh, and showing that people do feel more identified with the characters in the mask under certain conditions. So, um, so that was the, yeah, that was my, <laughs> I did two theses basically. Uh, and we still, I haven't written that much about it actually. It's one area of my work that I haven't written that much about. Maybe one day I'll publish. Oh, I think it's actually, I think it actually it's available. No, it is available on the web, that thesis now. Right, okay. You're welcome to read it now. <laughs> All 500 pages of it. <laughs> I'll put that on my through list. Um, so, Mick, you've spent, is it true you spent the best part of 20 years in the field of existential therapies and in that line, line of work? Yeah, I qualified in 99. So coming up to 20, I qualified as an existential psychotherapist in 99. So I guess coming up to 20 years. But I mean, I've been involved in the existential world. I train mainly around person-centered therapies. My work these days is mainly in counseling psychology, which is very pluralistic. Um, so I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm still involved in the existential world. And some of my books have been about existential therapy and I love existential ideas, but I'm not in any way a existential purist or equally not a person-centered purist. It's really important for me to be able to uh stand back as well as stand in these different approaches and see the connections between them and and, and how they work together and drawing on 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 different fields in different ways and the latest book that i've done around uh, the concept of directionality uh is another attempt kind of uh alongside pluralism to find ways of building bridges between different therapies okay and initially, what what was what pulled you into existentialism? Why did you get so interested in the field? Uh, I wanted to train actually as a Gestalt therapist, and I think I did a I did a one year training in person centered therapy at the university, and then I wanted to train as a Gestalt therapist, but I think I wanted to go in the second year course, and they insisted that I started at the beginning. And then I was looking around for other courses and uh, I, I kind of fell on it. I fell in it more than anything else. It wasn't a kind of deliberate decision to train as an existential therapist. Um, it just kind of came up. I thought, well, I'll give it a go. It sounds a bit intellectual, maybe. Um, I, like, I quite like the drama of Gestalt therapy and uh, it was very active, but I interviewed for the existential course, got on, thought I might as well give it a go. It was at Regents University, so it seemed like a nice place to study. Um, and as I got into it, I thought, yeah, I liked it when I got into it. Um, and I liked the um, de philosophical depth of it and the kind of questions and the reading. And I think after I got involved in it, that it was... It's, it's, a, it's a kind of approach which when you're reading at that philosophical depth, when your training is in, you're reading Heidegger and Sartre and uh, a lot of these kind of complex texts, it, it's probably difficult to come back from that in some ways. Um, not to say that that makes it particularly more effective, but just I think it, where you, once you've engaged with those philosophical ideas, you, if, given that they don't tend to be there in other therapies, um, or they are not so explicit, then um, I guess you, you, I've kept that with me really in that interest and always 
wanted to think about therapies at that level as as well as at other levels. Yeah, I've been I've been reading your the second edition of your book, uh, Existential Therapies, yeah. and one of the concepts I find really interesting in, in it was uh, existential guilt, and basically when you when you're making decisions in life, uh, no matter what you do, you're going to have existential guilt about the, the path not taken. And I remember you were considering being a journalist at one point. Do you, is that, is that just an example you used in the, in the book or is that something you're actually going to do? And can Am I going to do it or were you actually going to considering that yeah, at one yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't make it up. Um, yeah, no, I did. And I spent a long time thinking about, do I want to, I mean, one of the things that's always been very important for me in my life has been around social justice and social change. And so a question for me was always, how do I have a, and is, is always still, how do I have some kind of social impact and makes a good contribution to the world? And I think as a therapist, I did always, well, as a psychologist, I mean, the choice was more between being an academic or going down more journalistic lines. And I did sometimes think that when I was younger, thinking that, you know, journalism, you reach more people, you um, have a way of communicating with people that maybe in academia you don't. Um, so, yeah, it was a very serious thing that I considered. That I did write, I mean, I wrote for women's magazines at one point, um, did some writing and, and did, you know, different bits of journalism. The first book I wrote was a quite a kind of popular lay psychology text about men's, uh, men's mental health and well-being. So yeah, I did often think about that. And uh, I think I think where I got to though was being in like, I remember I used to do quite a lot of radio work and get rung up to do interviews about men, why do men do this and why do men do that? And there was one that I got asked to do, which was uh, why do men like doing barbecues and why do men go into the garden and do barbecues? And I thought this is, you know, is this really good use of my time talking about men and barbecues? And I think the, the journalists had this theory that it was something to do with big vegetables. And I just thought, I've got a better thing. Yeah, I just thought, and I think also I'd had a bit of a run in with the Times, actually, where they'd done an article about uh, men who live on their own. And they'd asked me about why did I think men live on their own? Sorry, not why do, why do men live with their parents when they're adults? And they'd asked me about why do I think men live with their parents? And I'd said, well, it's probably, you know, complicated. There's probably lots of reasons. Um, uh, sometimes people can't afford it. And sometimes people don't, you know, fairly kind of, understand it wasn't you know nothing particular and they'd done this big splash cover about mick cooper psychologist sneers at men who live at home and says you know they do it because their mummy's boy and obviously that was what the journalist had been hoping i'd say when i hadn't said it they'd said it anyway so i i complained and i wrote to the times and they they actually retracted it and uh, put an apology and i spoke to the journalist and journalists just said well you know it was more interesting to write it this way than what you'd actually said so I think I just had this sense that journalism was so much about, so often, certainly the way what I was involved in was about just just saying what people wanted to hear, really, rather than learning. So uh, at that point, I was I felt happier leaving it. Less existential guilt in moving yeah. away from that work. And I don't particularly feel a strong desire to go back to it. 
although the idea of kind of communicating some of the ideas more broadly. And I think one of the things that's really important to me these days is how we take ideas from the therapy world and communicate them more broadly to people in a way that can be a force for the social good. That's still a really important concern for me. But I think academia is, academia is a wonderful place to be able to generate those ideas and, um, and, and have things to say. Yeah, for sure. And in what ways can people use this concept of ex- existential guilt as a, as a motiv- motivating force in their life for creating personal change and getting on a better path? would you say? Well, I think it's uh, a lot of it is really about accepting that. I mean, one of the things I like about existentialism is it's not <clears throat> so it's not so much about getting on a better path. It, it often flags up what are the tensions and the difficulties and what are the challenges. And I think compared with a lot of the kind of more positive psychology or perhaps kind of more, I was going to say new age, but kind of ideas about there is a better way of doing it and there's a right way of doing it and self-help and self-development. I think what existential guilt introduces is the idea, you know, when you say we're always going to feel regret and sadness for what we haven't done, um, it, it is more about just coming to terms with that really and saying, and, and that when we experience that, when we feel that there are things in our lives that are unactualized, accepting that that's part of the human condition uh, and maybe isn't something, um, you know, that there's not something wrong with us or we haven't failed because we feel that. But as human beings, it's, it's inherent that we will feel that we could have done more. Uh, and I think for me that, that that's quite a reassuring idea. And I think sometimes for clients who are kind of driven and driven and then feel bad when they're not achieving those goals having that sense that it's okay to not just not achieve your goals, but it's okay also to feel some regret about it is important. But I guess it does also help us think about what is it that we haven't done? Where do we feel guilt? One of the things Boober, who's written a lot about guilt, says that you know guilt does tell us about things that we genuinely, I mean, he writes more about existential guilt in the way, in the sense of hurting others or letting others down and says yeah if we feel guilt then maybe it's because we have done something that's hurt others and that contrasts maybe with the idea that it's some internal pathology but actually maybe there is a reality there and that we can look at that and learn from that yeah so i think existentialism encourages us to reflect on these feelings and think about what can be changed but also accept what can't yeah uh, you mentioned Buber there. One of the ideas I really liked in the book was Buber's whole idea of an, an I-thou relationship stance as opposed to, to I-it. Could you maybe, for someone who doesn't know what the concept is, could you maybe talk a bit about, about the I-thou way of relating to someone? So Buber says that we are always related to other people, but there's two ways that we can do that. One is what he calls the I-thou stance, as you say, and the other one is called the I-it stance. And the I now stance is a way of relating to another person, which is humanizing, which experiences the other as a subjectivity uh, rather than an objectivity uh, or an object, which really tries to value and respect how the other person experiences their world uh, and to stand alongside them with empathy and with care and with integrity and with honesty. And the I stance is a much more mechanistic way of understanding the other, where the other is essentially an object to us. Uh, we try and do things to them or make 
them do things for us. Uh, we, ta we, we, we taxonomize them and see them as, as an example of a particular category rather than being open to the uniqueness of that other that we are uh, encountering. And I think Boober's ideas are incredibly important. For instance, if we think about the uh, psychological treatment world today, that we could say that there's also two ways of relating to patients or clients, one of which is to really stand alongside them, to try and understand their world as they understand it, to see what they're struggling with, and to understand the intelligibility, the sense behind that struggle. And then the other is to see them as, a, as, as an instance of a particular diagnosis, whether it's depression or anxiety, and to have particular steps that we use to treat them irrespective of how they respond to that. Um, and that they are uh, a statistic uh, in, in, the, in the kind of mental health system rather than a real and, and, and live subjective person. And of course, Puba doesn't say that we can always relate to others in an either way. It says that we will inevitably have ways that we relate to what others in our ear. So for instance, a diagnosis is, 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 is a more I way of understanding someone. But for some clients, some of the time, it could be very helpful. And sometimes we need those I relationships, those taxonomies uh, to help us deepen an understanding of others. But if our relationship to others is only in that I it way, um, if our relationship to our clients is only in that I it way, then something gets lost. And that comes back to what we were talking about earlier about care and the importance of care that for, for clients or patients we work with to be itified, uh, objectified by the other to be turned into an object isn't a good experience. And, and, you know, clients say that over and over and over again, that they don't want to just be a statistic. And I think as psychologists and psychotherapists and counselors understanding that alternative way of relating to people is just so important and with all healthcare professionals as well, you know, whether it's a doctor or uh, a psychiatrist or a chiropodist, some, something of that I-thou relationship is really fundamental to people feeling respected and valued. Definitely. I think especially in, in modern society as well. Uh, could you maybe tell us about the concept of holistic listening and how therapists can use this in their practice? Yeah, so holistic listening is, is, I guess, one way into that I-thou stance because one of the things Booba says is that in the I-thou relationship, we relate to, to the other as a whole, not in terms of separating them into individual parts, kind of listening out for particular cognitions or particular emotions, but we engage with the other as a whole. So holistic listening is about trying to really take in the whole of the other to kind of breathe in the other in an embodied in a cognitive in an affective way as a therapist and um um you know i, I do an exercise around it for instance just for for when counselors are working with clients or just as a kind of practice exercise to really try just listening with their body so not to focus on the so much on the specific words of what they're going to say in response, but just to try really hard to take in and listen deeply to the client and then respond when they feel something at a level of bodily resonance. And it's interesting what comes up. I mean, it's not how one would expect therapists to work all the time, but for therapists, it can be a um, uh, really interesting to see how 
so much when they listen in that way of just relaxing and and, 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 and noticing what comes up in their body that many of their feelings like a kind of tightness or in their chest or, a, or, or an emptiness in their stomach relate to and resonate with what the client has been talking about. Because I think when we, to pick up the really deep, meaningful stuff with somebody of what's going on for someone, um, it doesn't come through in a few words or uh, even a few emotions. It comes through by trying to understand the whole of where that person is at and what's going on for them and often including the tensions and the contradictions and the 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 the, um the 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 competing directions in their life so we need to listen holistically to really understand where someone's at yeah another another idea i really liked uh was actually it was you brought it up in your talk with us was heidegger's idea of being thrown into the world and this sense of throwing us into the, the world of the we and could you maybe talk about that, but then also how people can become more individualized? I think one of the, way, the ways he recommends to do it is more of awareness of death. And yeah, could you maybe talk about that? Yeah, so Heidegger uses this term thrownness and this idea that we are all thrown into the world, that we don't choose the world that we come into. And one of the givens of existence is that we emerge in a world uh, that's not of our making and that <clears throat> somehow we have to find our way in it. And he particularly talks about the way that this thrownness is in a world of particular meanings where some things are designated or, or defined as being meaningful, whether that's to care for others or uh, to achieve or to earn lots of money, that these are all socially given meanings and that most of us spend our lives chasing after these things. And um, kind of running forward in, in, a, in a way that we haven't really worked out for ourselves, but is, is part of our social context. And that, I mean, Heidegger believes that we're always immersed in the world and like postmodern thinkers doesn't think that we can ever totally extract ourselves from it, but that through recognizing the social nature of our, our meanings, we can reflect and we can think about is this where I want or should go? I think one of the analogies I use is of somebody, it's like a kind of marathon race that somebody wakes up in the middle of a marathon race, sees everybody running and feels that they have to run in the same direction as everyone else without really knowing where they're going or what they're doing. And the question is, <clears throat> is that right for us? And that we do have some capacity, I guess, to stand back from that, to stand back and say, what is meaningful for me or what meanings do I want? So Heidegger talks about the way that in death, to some extent, can individualize us or recognizing our mortality, because we realize that we're not lost in this crowd forever, that at some point we have to stop that race, and that when we stop, not everyone else is going to be stopping at the same time, that others are going to go on, some will stop before, but our unique stopping point is ours uniquely. And seeing that, makes us can help us recognize that there is a certain degree of individuality and uniqueness and then what do we want to do between where we're starting and where we end that race do we want to keep on going in the same direction as everyone else maybe we do uh but our time is finite and maybe we want to do something different in our lives um and that's a question i guess that heidegger invites us to ask you know what do we want to make for these existences that we do have and within the context and within the limitations that it is given. And I guess that's also a question that a lot of our clients come to 
with us either explicitly or implicitly. And one of the things I like about existential therapy is that it stays with that question. It doesn't pathologize it. It doesn't say, you know, there's somebody who's asking those questions of meaning or is even depressed about a kind of sense of lack of meaning that there's necessarily something um, wrong with them, that perhaps they've got a level of insight and understanding and questioning that maybe others just are blind to or, 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 or don't want to ask, which is fair enough, but um, recognizing the value of asking those questions, I think can be really important and really humanizing for clients because they are big, I mean, they're big questions and they're big challenges. And, and, and I guess throughout human history, we've tended to avoid those questions and religion and, uh, and ideologies have often been ways that have soothed us uh, or, or whether deliberately or not ha have taken us away from these questions of what ultimately is the meaning of my life. And um, we live in an era where those, those kind of security blankets are, 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 are coming off more and more and where people are less certain about those securities and they're kind of tough questions that we all need to ask where they're really as, as far as i know at least there really aren't any easy answers there really aren't any easy answers to these questions there really aren't and that, that that's troubling and i think existential therapy is probably one of the only therapy that really says kind of being confused and asking questions and being lost and really not knowing what life is about is not some form of pathology but is actually maybe the, the the you know the natural state of human beings when we're really honest about stuff not very comforting <laughs> not necessarily what clients want to hear and certainly not something i would ever or any existential therapist would ever impose on the client but i think for people who are asking those questions uh it's good to have somebody who understands that those are important questions rather than someone who's maybe um has easier answers because it throws everything into question you know we can do these self-help books and we can do therapy and we can do all these things to improve ourselves but then when you ask a question about what is it all for why are we doing all these things what's the point of it all there's no easy answers i one of my favorite quotes i heard recently is it's a buddhist one it's uh little doubt no awakening um medium doubt small awakening and big doubt, big awakening. So the more doubt you can bring in your life, I think the better it can, it can get. Um, just a couple more questions to finish off, Mick, because I know you've got to get going. Uh, for any, anybody listening to this who's considering a career in therapy, what advice would you give to them about how to become the best possible therapist they could be? That's a very good question, how to be the best therapist they can be. I'd probably say, you know, think about what your strengths are. Um, are your strengths in <clears throat> listening and being very empathic? Are your strengths more in being actively engaged with people? Are your strengths in interpreting and um, uh, kind of insight? Are your strengths in a spirituality and a spiritual connection? And then maybe think about what therapies would match or would help you develop those or help you kind of draw on those in the, on the on those strengths in the best possible way so someone who really is very good at listening and has a lot of time might be most suited to training in a, in a person-centered probe someone who's more active and likes to be more active uh, perhaps in a more cbt approach or a more gestalt approach 
I think also it's really important to look at your motivation for why you want to be a therapist. Um, you know, we all have our own motivations and that's not a bad thing at all, but recognizing what's in it for us uh, is important in being able to put that to one side so that we can be there for our clients. I think also just recognizing it's a challenging field to go into that some people want to go into it and uh, think that it's going to be, you know, with a few years training that they'll be able to come out and have a full private practice charging people a hundred pound an hour. I mean, it just doesn't work like that. The people who are successful at it are the people who are committed and generally the people who are, ha have the ethics to do it from a place of care and concern for their clients. It's not, it, 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 it's a, it's a, it's an amazing grat gratifying profession, but it also draws a lot uh, from people, uh, and it, 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 it requires an enormous amount of uh, responsibility and professionalism, as well as kind of personal awareness. Um, so, also, I guess, be prepared for a lot of kind of personal, reflective work. Whatever approach you go into it, it, it is really important. Yeah. And last question, Mick. Uh, what does the future hold for Mick Cooper? And where can people find your work online? Well, I've just, so I mentioned that I've just done a book on direction. I mean, God knows what the future holds for me, but just in the, in, in the immediate future, is that right, the immediate future? In, in, in the near future, um, I've done a book called uh, Integrating Counseling and Psychotherapy, Directionality, Synergy and Social Change, which is a very snappy title, but is, um, it's about trying to kind of, as I say, create a broader framework for therapy and around the idea of directionality or agency. So it links together existential ideas as a kind of basis for an integrative framework that perhaps builds some bridges across the different therapies. So it's based on existential person-centered ideas, but it's very much trying to, and I think he is attuned to CBT, psychodynamics, psychoanalytic ideas of the unconscious. Uh, and that'll be out in February and you can find that just by Googling Mick Cooper um, uh, or Amazon or Sage, it's by Sage. So that will get to that. And I think what I'd like to, I mean, personally, what I would like to be doing, and as I was saying earlier, is trying to engage more with issues of social justice, social change. I think I'd like to think about ways, as people like Andrew Samuels have done, about how we can use our ideas in the therapy world to help improve lives at a kind of broader level and looking at issues like racism and homophobia and transphobia. And I think we've learned so much in the therapy field about how to help people and some really important principles. But uh, obviously is not the age, is not the truth, but is has a lot to contribute to wider social change. So that's where I'd like to take my work and, but also continuing to develop at the one-to-one -one level and, um, developing as a practitioner uh, and as a teacher and, um, and and continue to do work that at that level can hopefully make a difference to people's lives but to be able to join that up with a wider social level as well 100 percent. well mick thanks so much for taking the time i really appreciate it and we'll speak soon all right okay thanks now thanks for listening and i hope you enjoyed the show don't forget that you can win a three-month pass worth £150 to the Weekend University if you subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you're interested in keeping up to date with new psychology lectures and upcoming events, 
you can sign up to the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com.